I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Actually, Matthew chapter 14, the uh, last verses of chapter 14. I'll be reading uh, Matthew 14, verses 34 through 15, verse 9. Uh, you'll probably notice that, uh, that this sort of, in a sense, uh, breaks at, at not the best place, but uh, rather than... Uh, Going all the way through chapter 15, verse 20 with you, I thought we'd uh, break up this, uh, this study into these two pieces. Uh, so we're going to look at uh, God's word as he presents it to us, Matthew chapter 14, verse 34 through chapter 15, verse 9. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. When the men of that place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that they might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Or picking up this narrative, as you've already noticed, uh, Right after that amazing scene and, uh, that we looked at last Sunday from Matthew 14, now the uh, Lord and his disciples have made it to shore after an incredible night's voyage, uh, possibly blown off course a little bit because they land in this area known as Gennesaret, which is, is not heavily populated at all. It was uh, known in Jesus' time as being a very fertile area. Uh, almost like a little oasis, it had a reputation throughout all this region for its uh, wonderful fruits and produce, uh, but it's a, more of a gardening or farming area than a population center, so, so there's no big city here. There is possibly a little village at this time or villages, uh, but that doesn't uh, stop the crowds from uh, coming to Jesus, does it? Uh, this is just south of Capernaum, and so it's close enough that some of these uh, people uh, have seen Jesus, and so they spread the word uh, from mouth to mouth, but ne uh, nevertheless very quickly, and, and crowds gather. And they bring to him specifically all who have illness. And as interesting scene, they... They implore that they might just touch the fringe of his garment in order to be healed. 
And that reminds us, of course, of that uh, story back in Matthew chapter 9. You remember it, where the the woman with a a chronic illness that rendered her unclean uh, believed that if she just touched the fringe or the tassel, this word could be translated tassel, of Jesus' garments, she would be made heal, whole. And, and so she, she sneaks up behind him, evidently, and, and touches it. But in his uh, divine knowledge, he knows that that has happened. And so he turns and not only affirms her healing, but, uh, but encourages her. Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. That friends or tassel may be uh, a reference to a custom that the Lord had given his people in the Old Testament that's mentioned in Numbers chapter 15. The Lord uh, told Moses to direct the children of Israel to put tassels on their, on their garments, on their outer garments, and put a cord of blue on the tassel at each one of those corners. And he said, when they... When they look at that, I want that to be a reminder to them of my law and of the fact that they belong to me as my people. Uh, So perhaps that's uh, what's in view here. We don't know. Uh, But whether or not it's specifically that tassel that is being spoken of here, it's clear that the, in this case, that the healing power of the Spirit through Jesus flows out to to many who came to Jesus believing that the touch of his clothing would heal them. That may, in part, account for the references that we read in the Gospels to crowds pressing in on him, uh, sometimes to the point of, of almost endangering him, him physically. Mark chapter 3, for instance, we read, He had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And in Luke 6 as well, all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And indeed, the verse used there at the end of chapter 14, made well, uh, sometimes that word is used with the meaning to save. So literally, you could could read this, as many as touched it were saved, And, and it carries a a connotation of, of complete healing, of just being made totally well. And so some translations uh, use an expression like uh, made perfectly well or made completely whole at the end of that, uh, of that uh, chapter. You know, just to maybe digress a little bit, this episode reminds us indirectly that human beings have their being in physical bodies created by God. And that means our bodies matter. The postmodern culture in which we live has a corrupt and irrational view of the body, and we want to make sure that we don't let that thinking impinge upon our minds. On the one hand, our culture glorifies the human body to an idolatrous extent. People are judged by their appearance and physical pleasure in various forms, but especially in terms of sexual feelings, is seen as the ultimate goal in life. But on the other hand, ironically, our culture devalues the human body and treats it like a commodity. 
the body's natural state and functions are subjected to all kinds of chemical and surgical abuse through the aborting of healthy babies, drug and alcohol abuse, violence through sexual and physical abuse, mutilation for cosmetic purposes and gender changes, and the practice of euthanasia. Both of those extremes are wrong. Both to idolize the body or abuse the body are sins, not just against oneself and other persons, but against God, because he created those bodies. Your body, or anybody else's, is not to be idolized as if it has some intrinsic value in itself that makes it worthy of worship. It is not to be the focus for your life. Nor is your body or anyone else's to be treated and abused like a commodity. Every human body possesses value and is to be treated with respect because it is the earthly embodiment of a creature made in God's image. That's the biblical basis for an ethics of the human body. And that ethic in a nutshell says that everything you do with or to your body or another person's body should reflect the truth that God made you and every other human being to live in earthly bodies in a matter that embodies gratitude to God and that glorifies him as God. And so in this narrative, we see that Jesus had a love for people that included their physical bodies. In fact, in the Gospels, we read of his feeding, healing, resurrecting, even touching and washing human bodies. And so his spiritual body, which is the church, has historically embodied our Lord's concern for people's physical as well as spiritual well-being. Followers of Christ have fed the hungry, ministered to those who are ill and dying, and sought to defend those who are being physically abused. And the church has consistently called people to repent of abusing their own or others' bodies and shown love to those who have suffered abuse from others. Your physical well-being, which is closely related to your mental well-being, of course, matters to God. And thus your physical and spiritual well-being matter to God's people, the church. If you're a member of his body by your union with Christ by faith, then you're called to follow him in caring for others as he did. In fact, your Lord assures you that as you tend to the physical and mental needs of brothers and sisters in Christ, he considers your service as done to him, and you will be rewarded greatly. So we see in our text then an extravagant love of Jesus, that he heals multitudes just that touch his garment. That then sets the stage for what happens next. This scene of common people crowding around Jesus is going to be uh, is going to sort of relate indirectly, we'll see, to this confrontation that he has with the religious elite. Okay, now, uh, they would have considered Jesus to be unclean by virtue of what he has just done. Because after all, these are sick people, and sick people are often ritually unclean. Now, of course, the 
The irony here is that rather than these sick people making Jesus unclean, he makes them clean by healing them. So it would have been great then if we'd uh, read then uh, Pharisees and scribes come up from Jerusalem and they say, isn't this wonderful that, that this man is ministering to so many people and, and, and common people at that, that, that he, he, he grants healing to anyone who comes, that he, he is anxious to teach them God's word. Uh, but of course, that's not what they say, is it? They do not come to con- commend him, but rather to condemn him. And in fact, you know, we're, notice we're told they're from Jerusalem. They, they have traveled a considerable distance to get up to the Sea of Galilee where he's at. Uh, they would have been on the road for at least a couple or three days. And this sort of has the air of a semi-official delegation then from Jerusalem among the scribes and Pharisees that have come to check this guy out. And obviously, uh, they're not impressed. Remember who these, these people are. The scribes were those who were uh, charged with copying the law of God. In those days before printing presses, they were the ones who, who were careful to copy down the, the uh, books of the Bible and preserve them, and so they were considered experts in, in what those books contained. They were sp- considered experts on the Bible. Pharisees were a, a group, mostly middle class, uh, who, who really had a great desire to, to live in conformity to God's law. Uh, and in conjunction with that, and we'll see in a moment sort of overshadowing that, to live in the traditions of the elders who interpreted that law. Uh, this is, is known sometimes as the oral tradition. And the theory behind it says that as Moses was given a written law that's recorded in Scripture, he was also given an oral law, something that wasn't written down but was passed down by word of mouth. And so they believe that oral tradition is directly from God, just as the written is. And you can see where this is going in terms of their argument, because that oral law is the tradition of the elders. Eventually, after the fall of Jerusalem, that gets recorded, written down uh, in Jewish books uh, called the Mishnah. At this point, that's not happened yet, but that oral tradition is extremely strong. And they don't like the fact that Jesus seems to be ignoring it. Because after all, it is Jesus they're attacking here. They bring up his disciples. But we know from Luke that Jesus didn't observe this ceremony either. In Luke chapter 11, he goes to dinner with the Pharisee, and we're told the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash through dinner. Now, before you kids tell your parents that you don't need to wash your hands before you eat, (laughs) we need to clarify what's meant by this washing. This is not a washing to get the dirt off or a washing to get rid of germs. Of course, germ theory hasn't even been invented, and hand washing is not a custom in terms of uh, 
cleaning or healthy right uh, for many years. Uh, what this is is a ceremonial rinsing. Uh, the elders, uh, to make a long story short, uh, took a couple of verses in the Old Testament, one that said that the priest had to wash their hands and feet before they went into the tabernacle or temple to worship. Uh, they, they were barefoot, you remember, and they're going to be using their hands to offer sacrifices, and so they symbolically washed the, their hands and feet before entering the tabernacle or temple to lead God's people in worship. Well, the, the, the elders took that and applied it uh, to everybody, uh, although they really didn't do the foot washing, but they seized upon this idea of washing their hands. And so in order to perform this ceremony, you would, you would take a cup of water and you had to have at least, well, they measured it in terms of, of the content of eggs, interestingly enough. And you needed at least the, the liquid equivalent of about one and a half eggs for this rite. And you'd have that in a cup. They came eventually to uh, be made with two handles. Uh, because what you would do is you'd take this, this water that had been set aside, and it, and it has to be from a vessel like this. You can't use running water. You can't just stick your hands under a faucet or something. So you take this cup, and you hold up your, your right hand, and you take the cup in your left, and you pour this water on your right hand. And some rabbis say you need to do that three times. You need to splash water on it three times. Then you shift the cup to the right hand, and you do the same thing to your left hand. And you make sure you keep your hands with the fingers pointing up, because if any of that water runs back down onto your fingers, it's contaminated, and you have to do the whole thing all over again. So you've got to keep your fingers up, and then you set down the cup, and then you dry your hands, and you perform that rite. And it came to be associated with a, a specific prayer that would be recited at the same time. So that's what they're talking about. You're not only not doing it yourself, Jesus, but you're encouraging your disciples not to observe this, tra this tradition. So he's guilty not only of breaking the tradition, but of teaching others to break it. Who, who is this so-called rabbi who has so little respect for his elders, for those who have gone before him and interpreted scripture? Well, it's clear that that the Pharisees have really elevated tradition in their own minds. Uh, that's really sort of behind virtually all of the accusations against Jesus from the Pharisees and scribes. For instance, when he eats with tax collectors and sinners, or when, when he's letting his disciples grab some uh, grain off the stalks and, and eat it as a snack, walking through the the fields on the, on the Sabbath, or when he's healing on the Sabbath. All those are in violation of this tradition. Well, Jesus' response comes then in verse 3. And he answers their question with a question. He actually does that quite often. He answers a question with their question. Sometimes that's the best thing to do, because their question has put the focus on the wrong thing. Their question has held up the tradition of the elders. 
But immediately you see his question in verse 3 holds up the word of God. Notice how his question sort of echoes theirs as well. They say, why? He says, why? They say, your disciples. He says, you. They say his disciples break the tradition of the elders, and he says, you break the commandment of God for your tradition. This is really a matter of a question of what is most important, isn't it? Well, he, he proves that they're doing this in a way that might seem obscure to you at first. Uh, verse 4 is understandable. He was referring back to the Old Testament law, honor your father and your mother. That's the fourth of the commandments. Uh, some, some students of Scripture would say that, that it sort of has pride of place in the commandments. You have the first three commandments about our relationship with God, the the other commandments, beginning with the fourth, are, are concentrated on our relationships with others. And this one comes first, to honor. Honor your father and your mother. Literally, the, the verb there means uh, consider them weighty. Okay. Uh, consider them heavy. And, of course, that's a metaphor for saying they're important. Respect them. Treat them with respect. And, and indeed, that... That commandment is really the basis for a godly family and, and community, isn't it? Uh, a respect for authority is important. And, and so the, the child who's born into a family, the first authority over them is their parents, and so they're to learn to submit to the authority of their parents. And that doesn't include just doing what they say, it includes treating them with respect, speaking to them with respect. And that then is reflected in the next quote that, that Jesus gives from Exodus 21:17. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. And actually, the, the word there translated curse is, is in a sense the opposite of that word honor. Because this word in Hebrew means to treat lightly to treat as insignificant, to disregard or disrespect. And so it's more than just speaking a curse. It, it, is, it is speaking rebelliously against parents. It is, it is verbally abusive language. And, and so Jesus is calling attention to this as, as an important part of God's law. Well, how is it that they're breaking this then? That's where it becomes a little hard to understand. Verse 5, which in my translation says, If anyone tells his father or his mother what you would have gained from me is given to God, well, what's, what's in view there is a, is a practice of, well, it's a legal loophole, loophole to the law. You know, the tradition of the elders said that if, you'd, if you pronounced that something you owned was a gift to God, even if it was something you were going to give in the future, then that could not be given to anyone else. And so evidently what some people are doing is they're, they're saying to their parents, well, you know, I, I'd really like to help you, but I've, I've willed my estate to the temple, you know, I've given it to God. 
so I can't help you. I, I can't support you. Uh, in fact, in some instances, there seemed to be an impl implication that the parents couldn't even set foot on the property if it had been given over to God like that. Now, obviously, uh, obviously that tradition breaks the spirit of that law. And so Jesus responds very seriously. Look at verse 6 again. For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the command or word of God. You and your tradition are saying you're above God's word. And so here's his verdict. Jesus has been the one who has saved people. In the previous scene, he is the one who judges people now. You Hypocrites, you fakers, you pretenders. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, and here's what makes them hypocrites. Okay? This people honors me with their lips. They're saying all the right things. Isaiah is prophesying to people and they're doing all the temple rituals the correct way. They're showing up on the Sabbath for worship. They're, perhaps they're even, even professing faith and singing the songs, but he says their heart is far from me. What they profess with their mouths is not the true condition of their heart. And so their worship is vain. It's empty. It's meaningless. And here's the Here's the punchline. They're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. They're teaching their own ideas in place of God's word. Isaiah goes on to pronounce a, a judgment on, on the people of the covenant people that was indeed meted out in the destruction of that of that country. So, this raises the question for us, doesn't it? What's the place of tradition? What's the place of tradition? Paul says, before he was converted, Galatians chapter 1, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now notice something about that. When he makes this statement, he says, advancing in Judaism is happening through his zealousness for tradition. So what does that tell you? Well, that tells you that that the object of his faith, of his religion, was keeping the traditions. He doesn't say, I was advancing in, in Judaism because I was growing in godliness, or because I was in, living more faithfully to God's word. Rather, it's his zealousness in maintaining the traditions of the fathers, which is central. And indeed, that zealousness led him to imprison and even kill people. He was extremely zealous. Now later, after his conversion, he describes that zeal for tradition as a form of slavery. 
In Colossians chapter 2, he warns believers, make sure that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. He says later, therefore, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That rite of ritual washing for the priest had meaning because it pointed to a spiritual truth that was fulfilled in Christ. So don't submit to regulations, he goes on to say, according to human precepts and teachings. Okay, don't make a list of human rules and think that you're pleasing God. These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. They, they look from the outside or look at how disciplined that person is, how how Firmly, he's following his rules. But Paul says they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They're absolutely useless, he's saying, in terms of true godliness. What's the right way to view tradition then? Jesus is not throwing out tradition altogether here. We're not to read that that way. Rather, rather, Jesus is saying you need to make sure you have your priorities right when you're thinking about tradition. Now, tradition is part of the glue that, that holds communities and families together. Traditions can be enjoyable and wonderful things. I'm sure your family has traditions, our community has traditions, those are are good so long as they're in their proper place. And the reformers affirmed this in particular during the Protestant Revolution, or Protestant Reformation, when they gave us the doctrine of sola scriptura, scripture alone. Now, now when they say scripture alone, they're not saying Okay, you as a believer, you just take your Bible and you have to invent any, everything on your own. You have to come up with your own worship service. You have to, you have to start from scratch in every area. That, that's not what they're saying. What they're saying is that Scripture alone has ultimate authority. Scripture alone has ultimate authority. Scriptures are authoritative over every other authority, including tradition. That's what Jesus is affirming here. Scripture has priority over traditions, even those traditions that are good. Now that means, of course, as well, that no person has authority in themselves. But rather, when... I'm teaching, or when someone else is teaching, we do so under the authority of Scripture. And so you as a congregation are to, to hold your teachers accountable and make sure that what we're saying is indeed what Scripture teaches. So, yes, we can go back to tradition. We can go back to men like Augustine and read what they've said and look at their lives, what they've done, and we can benefit from those examples, but they are not 
to be the end in themselves that always is reserved for Scripture. Now that, that has a very practical application for you right now. Because that means that if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, the Scripture is to be your guide in everything you do. It's not that, well, Scripture is, is your guide for Sunday mornings when you're in church and you're sort of on your own the rest of the week. No, Scripture, scripture is your authority in every aspect of life. Now, tradition can be a wonderful help to you in living in submission to, authority, to the, the authority of Scripture. But be careful that tradition doesn't take first place in your thinking because then you're a slave of tradition and it will lead you away from the truth. This is just the way I am or, well, I've always done it this way. And uh, that's, that's not to be the language of a Christian. That can be an excuse for sinful thinking and acting. There's, a, there's inevitably going to be, for you as a believer, there's inevitably going to be those times when you have to repent of doing things the way that you always have. And you have to be willing to set aside a tradition, a habit of life that's in contradiction to God's word. It's going to take courage and determination for you to do that. But I think a helpful way to keep traditions in their proper place as your servants rather than as your masters is to keep in first place your calling to Christ. You know, it's often the case that to avoid doing the wrong, we want to concentrate on doing the right, okay? So listen to Paul's words in Colossians 3 in closing. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You catch the the future focus of that, the forward orientation, the heavenly focus? So now, he goes on to say, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to each other, seeing that you have been, that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, 
which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd break wrong ways of thinking and acting in us, that you would give us that freedom that comes from loving and serving you. May we be a people, Lord, who are being remade every day in your image for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.